This morning I'm going to make an argument that the scriptures is the only source for stability in our lives. The reason that I'm going to put it this way is because most people don't have the stomach for instability. If they did, there'd be a lot more people with a lot more money. There's a reason that a very small number of people have billions of dollars that they're in control of. It's because they have to be willing to work 168 hours a week in a terrible work environment making decisions that impact tens of thousands of people. And they have to expect the worst kinds of reaction from 300 million plus people. Most people need a firm foundation. And I want to talk about inspecting our foundation this morning to see what kind of home we're building for ourselves. In Scripture, our spiritual lives are likened to a house. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, where the Savior says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus says that there are two foundations we can build our house on, the rock or the sand. Houses built on a rock will withstand hardships and trials, but houses built on sand will crumble under pressure. So this morning, is your spiritual house built on something stable or unstable? Now this morning when I say spiritual life, I don't just mean a life concerned about the eternal, concerned about a supernatural soul and its preservation. I'm talking also about the way we structure our lives so that they may have more meaning than just our physical presence and our possessions. People have been wrestling with the question about fulfillment for as long as we've been on this earth. And we've come up with a multitude of answers to the question, where can I find more meaning in life? This morning I want to examine the answers that are offered by the world and by scripture. And we will see by the end that scripture offers the most stable foundation. The foundation of a house, continuing to think about our spiritual lives as a house, the foundation is critical to stability. The more stable a foundation the house is built on, the less likely it will be to collapse. Most people want stability, as I mentioned before. So are you getting the, this kind of stability out of your spiritual life? Does your spiritual life make you feel meaningful 
and fulfilled? Or do you feel more like nothing you do really matters, that the world has more control over you than you do over yourself? That in the grand scheme of things, the world is so chaotic and unpredictable that all you can really do is hold on tight and pray that nothing really bad happens to you. According to Jesus' parable that we just read, our spiritual lives can be built on one of two foundations, the scriptures or not the scriptures. And Jesus declares that the scriptures are the rock. I hope that I'll prove that to you this morning. And not the scriptures are the sand. They're the unstable part. They're the unstable foundation that we can build on. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, the apostle here expounds on what the sand is, what it is to build our lives on anything but the scriptures. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So if you've never thought about building your life on one of these things, well, I'd like to ask you to think about that this morning. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about individual ideologies that we might build our lives on because I think they all fall into one of these three groups. Unless you're the scriptures, of course. There's a little bit of overlap that I'm sure we will, will come to our minds as we talk about what the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are. For instance, you might want a big mansion on a hilltop because it appeal, appeals to your eyes because it looks very nice or because it appeals to your pride because look at me and look at how important I am that I live in this great big mansion. When we're talking about a life founded on one of these things, we're talking about a life that has rejected the scripture in favor of finding fulfillment in essentially temptation. Again, one of these three categories. In order to carefully define what we're going to be talking about as we move through these ideas, I want to illustrate what these three things are. And I think that there are two stories that do this very well. The first is in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 6, where Eve observes the fruit that she's being tempted by. She the scripture says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. And there you have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Additionally, in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus is being tempted by the devil, he's not tempted in many different ways. He's tempted in three foundational ways. In verses 2 through 3 of chapter 4, being 40 days tempted the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Verses 5 through 7, And the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee in the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou, be, if thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. 
And then in verses 9 through 11, the devil brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou, sh thou dash thy foot against a stone. Eve was tempted in three ways about the tree that was in the midst of the garden. It was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and it would make one wise. Likewise, Jesus was tempted in three ways by the devil. Turn this, this stone into bread and eat. I'll give you everything that you can see from this mountain and throw yourself off this building because you're going to be fine anyway. In this, we see the three foundations of life offered by the world. The lust of the eyes, I see, is the desire to have what the eyes see. The desire for possession, of ownership. The lust of the flesh is the desire to consume upon our lusts. We see something that we want for more than just to have it, we want to use it. We want to use it because our flesh is desirous of it. I think that gluttony is the clearest example today of what we might think of as the lust of the flesh. And the pride of life, the desire to be lifted up, the desire to be more than what we are currently. The tree would make Eve wise, and Jesus was supposedly invincible, so it shouldn't have been a problem for him to step off of that temple. So now we'll examine whether a life built on one of these things can offer us stability. A life built on lust of the flesh is desire for consumption, the desire of never wanting for anything to use. I mentioned glutton early, earlier, a, an unrestrained desire to consume food. There are other things that the flesh can be tempted by for the sake of use, Sin of a sexual nature can be tempting to the flesh by offering to fulfill sexual desires so we can pursue things that will fulfill the, the need, the want that the flesh is expressing in that way. The consumption of drugs and alcohol for the purpose of altering our state of mind can also be considered lust of the flesh. These, these substances offer to fulfill a desire to be unburdened by the world. Maybe if only for a short time. But again, we can think of this as desire for consumption. There was a man who allowed all of his lusts to be indulged and consumed without restraint. And he wrote a book about his experiences called Ecclesiastes. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11... He wrote about his desire for consumption. King Solomon wrote, I said in my heart, go, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what, was, what that 
excuse me, I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and, and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Does that not sound like somebody who had anything that he wanted whenever he wanted it? Solomon used the world, its products, everything around him to his heart's content. And in the end of this, he concluded, I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. If the most self-indulgent man to ever live did not find meaning or stability in consumption, then how can anybody today? How can these things offer us a stable lifestyle? How can they offer us more meaning than just physical presence? If it were possible to become fulfilled in desire for consumption, then there would be people that would stop working today because they had enough. Jeff Bezos wouldn't have a trillion dollars to his name because he would have stopped a long time ago. He would have had enough. People would stop eating because they thought they didn't need any more food. But we continue to eat and we keep eating and we have to keep eating. This need can become an obsession and dominate our spiritual life. Unbridled consumption will never provide meaning or stability in our lives. A life based on lust of the eyes is one desirous of being fulfilled by appearances. This life wants all of the shiniest toys. We know this kind of life by names like materialism and consumerism. But what kind of stability does pursuit of material possessions offer? In my evaluation, the driving factor in this life is only, do I like the way that it looks? And if I do, then I must have it. If you find yourself troubled by a desire for something because you can't have it, well then, congratulations, you've experienced what the vast majority of people on this earth experience. As I mentioned earlier, there are very few people that have all the money in the world. To these people, I'm sure it's no problem to chase whatever it is their eyes see and that they might desire. Now, I have a trillion dollars to my name. I see that house over there, I'll just go and get it. And most people don't live that way today. In addition, how does the heaping up of possessions really add value 
to our lives beyond the physical. We can't take any of these possessions with us when we die, after all. Looking to another writing in Ecclesiastes, this time in chapter 5, verse 10 through 16, Solomon is writing now about how he heaps up possessions and just collects things. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he, hath, and he begotteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? Solomon writes here that riches are an empty pursuit because the pursuit never ends. They call it a rat race for a reason. Even if you win the race, aren't you still a rat? He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. He writes alongside saying, When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. Those who chase, sh chase shiny toys and possessions desired by their eyes will never complete their chase. There's always a faster car. There's always a new iPhone. There's always more gold. There's always more zeros to add to the end of a bank account. It's sometimes said, he who dies with the most toys wins. I don't think that this is ever said seriously because we have not yet forgotten that we can't take any of this stuff that we have with us when we go. You know, that was something that the pagan religions of Jesus' time believed. They would put gold coins on their loved one's eyes in their caskets because they thought they would need that to pay the ferryman that would take them across the river into eternity. I bet there's a lot of gold to be dug up in the graves of ancient Greeks and Romans because it's still there. They didn't take it with them. We know that today in spite of the fact that so many people live a life bound and determined to get more. And that's all that they can think about is getting more. So the desire of the eyes is no stable way to organize our lives. In addition, it adds no real meaning beyond physical presence. I don't think that there are just an overwhelming number of people that if you asked them, is the only thing you do in your life get stuff and consume stuff? I don't think people would think of themselves so low. I think most people would think, I organize my life around the idea that I'm right. The idea that somebody else knows enough that I have learned and so I can, I can live my life according to these principles. 
But these are all lives built on the pride of life. This is a life that is desirous most of being its own master, of being lifted up in our own knowledge or abilities. I have a hypothesis that I don't think I could ever prove. But it is that this is the primary reason that people reject religion in general and Christianity specifically. Usually those who chase the pride of life declare that they reject blind faith. They choose a scientific or fact-based philosophical way of life. But it turns out that those intelligent people, you know, the, the people that are allegedly making the rules for all of the people that say, well, I live a fact-based life. I listen to the intelligent people and they tell me what's true and then I organize my life based around that. Well, it turns out that the rules makers in this category, they don't know everything that the people living according to their teachings think that they do. I only know of one example that is as bold as this one. 1959, Sir Arthur Keith, a renowned atheist of his time, said, evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it only because the only alternative is special creation, and that is unthinkable. How proud does that sound to you? I can't imagine a world where there might be a God that I would have to obey. And so I arrange my pursuit of knowledge around that. Here's a man whose spiritual life is built on the pride of life. Another man he's listed there below, Robert Jastrow, 1978, said this. He is a little bit, just a little bit humbler than Sir Arthur Keith. He styles himself an agnostic. He says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians, people that believe in God, who've been sitting there for centuries. At the pinnacle of truth, says Robert Jastrow, who refuses to be a Christian, who refuses to accept religion, at the pinnacle of truth stands these God-fearing people. As it turns out, in their most honest moments, the people writing the rules for a life governed by pride will admit either that they do believe in God and that their scientific pursuits, scientific and philosophical pursuits have led to him, or that they pursue those things in the hopes of destroying God. My question for anyone here this morning who may think of yourself as someone belonging to this field of thought for the sake of uh, simplicity, let me, just, let me just call you one who's built your life upon pride. How is the pursuit of making me my own master through trusting in these men of greater understanding than myself working out 
Has their knowledge made your spiritual life more or less stable? Has their search to eradicate God given your life more meaning? Does the knowledge that some of them believe in God shake your foundation? You see, this is the life that these wise men live. They're constantly searching for the nebulous truth. It's out there just beyond reach, and if only they could get it, well, then all of our lives would be so much better. If they're honest, they are constantly shifting their spiritual house, constantly moving, never stable. So that they can sit on where they think that the truth lies for today until they find it somewhere else and then they have to move again. Returning again to Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote in chapter 1 of this book about all of the knowledge that he'd accumulated. Verses 13, 14, and 16 through 18. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow." Solomon devoted his life to pursuit of wisdom. He saw everything under the sun and concluded that it is vanity and concludes that knowledge leads only to sorrow. Is this the kind of spiritual life that you want? Does it offer meaning? Does it offer stability? It certainly doesn't guarantee either of these things because by its own admission, we cannot be built on a rock. As soon as the truth changes, then we must pick up our spiritual house and go move it over there. I hope that you're honest this morning in the consideration of where you have built your house. Is it on the lust of the eyes? Is it on the pursuit of possessions? Is it on the lust of the flesh? Is it on the chasing of constant consumption? Whatever is going to make my body feel good, that's what I'm going to do next. Or is it built on the pride of life? The lifting up of myself in my knowledge, in my skills, in my abilities in my pursuit of something greater than myself, but anything but God? Or is it built on the scriptures? These are the only alternatives that we have to build our spiritual homes on. 
We've incidentally discussed so far this morning why the scriptures might be rejected as a foundation, but why should they be accepted? What stability and meaning do they offer? By way of stability, there's not much that's more stable than the scriptures. The text of the scriptures hasn't changed in any meaningful way in the thousands of years since its first publication. In, as a brief summary, there are over 14,000 copies of manuscripts, ancient documents, that contain parts of the New Testament in various languages. Early leaders in the Church of Christ quoted the New Testament in their writings 36,289 times, adding up to the entire New Testament, save 11 verses. The New Testament is the most recorded book in history with respect to the quantity of recordings. The second most recorded book is Homer's Iliad at a grand total of 643 manuscripts. For the statistically minded of you, that's 4.5% the number of New Testament manuscripts. In addition, most of the manuscripts of the, New, of the New Testament are less than 200 years older than the original they are copied from. The next closest copies of originals are of the Odyssey and are 500 years older than the original. This is 2.5 times older than the relative age of the New Testament manuscripts. So the text of the scriptures has not really changed since it was first written. Okay, fine. What are the actual words of the scripture that offer us stability? I'm glad that you asked, hypothetical audience member. There are plenty. In Romans 12 and 18, Paul wrote, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Certainly you can agree that living peaceably rather than contentiously is a more stable way to live. All you have to do is think about how in countries like this one, people generally try to get along, and in other parts of the world, like the Middle East, people generally try to kill each other. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, the apostle writes, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Surely you will agree that telling the truth is a much more stable way to live than to constantly tell lies. Most people, even people we might consider to be of poor moral character, generally tell the truth. There are very few pathological liars in the world on sexual relationships outside of marriage. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5 says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Recent studies, again, we're having to lean a little bit on the... Uh, words of these educated people that think they should set up our lives for us. Recent studies that they've conducted show that women experience more stable marriages and therefore life in general, the less promiscuous they are. 
this extends to men because in order for a woman to be in a stable marriage, she needs to be in a stable marriage with a man. So men and women working together live more stable lives on the traditional family. Titus chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, this will be in the English Standard Version, just for simplicity of some of the terms that will be used. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Again, studies of human behavior and the world today bear out that homes that structure themselves according to traditional gender roles according to a traditional husband-wife relationship, are happier with happiness measured by frequency of intimacy. So a much more stable home life is built by the conventional wisdom of the scriptures rather than these newfangled ideas that are being thrown around today. Not only are the scriptures a stable source of information, the information hasn't changed throughout the course of time, they offer guidance for life that makes for a stable life. They offer far more stability than any of the alternatives. But what do the scriptures offer by way of meaning? A lot of people live perfectly stable, empty lives because those lives are devoid of meaning. What do the scriptures have to say about this? Returning to Ecclesiastes, as King Solomon is concluding this document that he is writing, he says, since all of this experience and possessions and everything that I've collected throughout my years, this is the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. This is the meaning offered by scriptures, to serve a purpose higher than yourself, knowing that you will stand in judgment before God. How is this meaning better than what the world has to offer? Think about the way that worth is measured according to the foundations that we mentioned earlier. The lust of the flesh. Whoever has the greatest life has the greatest meaning. In a world of finite resources, this means that some people will be measured greater than others. And many people will not have any opportunity to be measured as great as the greatest in this earth. How does the lust of the eyes measure people? In, the same, in much the same way, we mentioned it in this way earlier, he who has the most toys wins. And the pride of life measures people by who is the most puffed up. Who thinks of themselves the highest? And of course, in order to be the highest, you've got to look down on everyone else. All of these set people in competition against one another for contrary goals. Not everyone is allowed to win the game of a life dominated by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the lies, and the pride of life. However, a life dedicated to fearing God and keeping his commandments is not in competition with our fellow man. It strives in to a common goal 
rather than a contrary one. We all work together to make sure that everyone lives up to the teachings of Scripture. Let's be real, though. What should we be asking of the foundations of our lives? Not just stability. Not just meaning, though these things are all well and good, the most important thing that our foundations can be is true. The way I see it, if choosing your foundation is about a subjective decision of how much stability or risk you're willing to accept, or how much meaning you want to get out of life, then debating the merits of these foundations is meaningless. I should just pick whichever one that I want, and if one doesn't make me happy, then I should choose another one. But, if there is an underlying truth to any one of these foundations, then that gives us a concrete reason, pun not intended, to build a spiritual house on that foundation. And in this regard, only the scriptures make a claim to underlying truth. The pride of life makes some claims to some truth some of the time. But most of the time claims that truth is whatever it needs to be. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes make no claim of underlying truth as far as I know. The quickest way to prove or to disprove the underlying truth that the scriptures claim is to examine the claim that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And we could spend hours on this claim alone. I think I could spend five by myself, but I would run us through lunch and then probably get run out of town. So in brief, there are over 300 prophecies about a Messiah recording, recorded in the Old Testament. Jesus of Nazareth, born around the same time that historians, scientists, and philosophers agree to refer to as the Common Era, began and fulfilled them all to the letter. His life is recorded by four men from differing backgrounds and nationalities who shared two things in common, that they were ancestral Jews and that they were later martyred for their faith that Jesus rose from the dead. Many historians of the age testify to his existence, life, death, and the events surrounding his resurrection, including the faith unto death of the apostles. Contemporary historians and philosophers cannot refute these facts and so take to, to attempting to explain away the resurrection with conspiracy theories, but no, no one theory addresses every piece of evidence. This is the one and only event that need to be disproven in order to obliterate the Bible as the one true rock of foundation, as Paul was forced to admit in 1 Corinthians 15 and 17, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Across the centuries since this event took place, not only does there exist plenty of evidence to suggest that Jesus did rise, but no rebuttal of the resurrection stands to scrutiny because none can sweep away all of the evidence. 
So in conclusion, I ask you again, where is your spiritual house built? Take a look at the foundation. Is it on the sand? Have you built a spiritual house on the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, some combination of the three? It's all sand. Has it made your life a stable one that is more often comforting than stressful? Has it filled your life with purpose and meaning? Is it the truth? Or is your life built on the rock? If your life is built on the rock this morning, then praise God. But if it's built on the sand, then why not move? If you woke up tomorrow and a reputable source told you that your house, your physical house, was built on a sinkhole, and one day you and all your possessions would be swallowed up, would you not make haste to abandon this unsafe structure? Or would you wait until the day came when you lost everything forever? Don't wait. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.